Welcome to the Born to Write podcast, dedicated to writers, authors, and the art of storytelling. Go behind the scenes where writers reveal their ups and downs and how they finally shared their stories with the world. Now, here is your host, Azul Tarones. All right, friends, welcome to Born to Write. Today, I'm so excited to introduce, really, I would hope to say a new friend to the space. Craig Martell's here, the science fiction author and dystopian science fiction, I would say, who's here to share with us his ideas, his thoughts. And Craig, thank you so much for showing up. Hey, no problem. No problem. It's showing up is relative. It's pitch black here. It's uh, five in the morning. And even at 10 in the morning, it's still dark So because <laughs> it's, it's winter. And right. it's, it's on its way to minus 33 today. And that's ambient, not wind chill. I can't even fathom what that's like. So let's start there. How did you get to Alaska? That's my, I was like, hmm, I, I don't know if this has anything to, to do with books, but I was like, this is a story underneath itself. Oh, I retired from the Marine Corps. And then uh, we went back to Pennsylvania and my wife went to university because she wanted to get her PhD. So I'm hanging out doing something. I tried a short gig with the, the federal government and that was just horrendous after I retired from the Corps. And so I dodged out and said, hey, I always wanted to go to law school. So let me go to law school. It's said three years later, I graduate law school, summa cum laude. And okay, I got a law degree. Now what do I do with it? I uh, went into business consulting. That was very lucrative, but I uh, moved around a lot. I was uh, uh, going on site with the clients and my wife is continually, she's churning, digging through. Well, she finishes her PhD and that first year couldn't find a job, Not couldn't even get an interview. So then the next year rolls up and she's like, oh my God, I, there's no interviews. I've applied for 40 jobs. I got one call back and that was pretty much to tell me, no, you're not qualified or something like that. And then all of a sudden, this job pops up at University of Alaska Fairbanks. And it's a short term. It's a one-year gig. And the semester starts in three weeks. So she gets a Skype interview. And all of a sudden, they're like, yes, we want you. You're hired. And <clears throat> well, so that was six years ago. One year, a gig turned into a three-year gig, turned into a, a tenure track position. So that's why we're here. I, I worked consulting. I was gone over half my life. I was working in the oil fields on the North Slope of Alaska because my company was very good about trying to keep people close to where they were living. So I went to the North Slope, and the North Slope of Alaska is 500 miles from the North Pole. It's okay to be cold, but holy crap. Uh, the coldest I experienced up there was minus 74. Oh, my gosh. And, oh, that'll just kill you. You go outside and that, and that'll just, it just sucks the life out of you. And plus, I was gone half my life. It was two weeks on, two weeks off. And I'm like, I'm 52 years old. I'm, I've had enough of this. So I retired from that. And I had uh, good investments and good stuff. I really didn't need to work. My wife was working full time. And I sat down and I can't just do nothing. So I'm like, hey, I always wanted to write a book. Let me write a book. And that was a little over two years ago. I now have, geez, 30 full length novels published and numerous short stories, anthologies, co-written books. And it's been a great ride so far. Now, I know there's people who are listening whose minds just exploded at 30 full-length novels in just about two years. And I think, I think for a lot of people, writing one would seem incredible. And I think people want to know about it. But I think if I had to tell them what it is, it's, it's showing up every day, like you, we said when we started. But it's about the commitment. Tell me what it is for you. Because once you write a novel, People think their first novel should be really great, so they spend all this time. Like, you know, I've got to get it right. This is the one. 
And I was like, if you think that's how it works, then you're mistaken. The one, there's no such thing as the one. What do you feel about that? I would say that assume that your first novel is going to suck. And I think you're going to be in a much better mental position because if you assume that, even though you're doing your very, very best, I mean, for Pete's sake, I've got a law degree. I've got a JD behind my name. And my first book, as I was editing it, I reread it like 20 times trying to edit myself. And I'm like, oh, hey, this is great. Look at how this flows. Oh, my God, what idiot wrote this? And, and uh, it's okay. It really is. Because the first time you strap on the sneakers, you're not going to run a marathon. And the first time you sit down to write a novel, you're not going to write that world-class bestseller. It may happen, but that's one in a million authors. Don't assume you're one in a million. Assume you're the other 999,000. will differentiate you and get you into the top 1,000 is not giving up. Taking that first book and the criticism, the one-star reviews, the oh my gods, and getting better. If you can have somebody who is in your genre, a writing coach, to help you improve your prose, maybe you're a great storyteller, but you're not a great word slinger. Well, get a good editor and then do what you need to do to improve your prose and then keep improving. And that's the great thing about this journey, the 30th book. I love seeing the reviews popped up because a lot of them said, well-written, great crafted story, a master storyteller. I mean, those are huge ego boosts. But you can't rest on those because for me personally, uh, 30 books, I have 2.25 million words written over the last 844 days. I average 2677 words a day for every day for the last 844 days. Every single day I'm writing, I'm trying to get better. And even 30 books in, I still don't have that perfect book for me, that I consider a perfect book. So I keep trying. And maybe that's uh, how I grew up with uh, playing golf. <laughs> Golf's I, a good analogy. That's a game you got to keep trying for sure. Well, I started when I was nine. My dad wouldn't let me on the course until I could hold my own. So I played my first round on a real golf course when I was 11 years old. I'd probably hit, oh, geez, 100,000 golf balls by then. And I studied it. And my very first round of golf, I shot a 93. <laughs> that's amazing. Practice. Yeah. So that's writing as well. You keep practicing, you write it, and you get better. And even my first book, which I unpublished, a traditional publisher picked it up. It's uh, You can find it with Simon & Schuster now, that series. That's the End Times Alaska series. It got professional editing. It got new titles. It got new covers. It got the uh, some executive treatment. And that was my first book. Now, human beings are natural storytellers, but writing it down is a little bit different. So if you can take that natural storytelling ability that humans have had through since as long as there's been humans and then put it down in the written word and then flex and see how it flows, then you'll be able to craft a story that people are willing to pay for, which is what it takes to be a successful self-published author right. or a traditional published author. People have to be willing to buy your stuff. Right. I think that's the, uh, one of the biggest misunderstandings of people who want to not just publish a book, because anybody could publish a book, but to be an author is a commitment. And you have to understand that a good part of your business is understanding what it takes to be successful as much as, and sometimes even more than writing, because your book will not get known just because it's good. Put it there and people will show up and, oh, it's so good. I, I can't believe it. I'll share it with the world. And I think people who write think the same way that they're afraid of reviews. They think that if it's good enough, that, that they won't have to do that stuff. And I think that's a, a misunderstanding. And it's tough. I mean, not, uh, 
anybody who likes self promo, I question their. Uh, <laughs> those are the politicians in the world that uh, we all despise. And I've had to do some promotions lately, and it made me feel dirty. And that's uh, I just don't like that. I yeah. I want to be the person who just writes a story and sets it out there. But you do have to market, and the only way you can successfully do that is you have to remove yourself from the writer and become here. I'm the marketing guy for Craig Martell Inc. And that's the only way to keep your sanity is to have a split personality. Right. So you put on that marketing hat and you look at it dispassionately from a third party perspective. If you need to pay somebody to do a great blurb, do that or study blurbs and look what's catching and try to replicate that and then come up with your own methodologies for hooking the readers. But you still have to get that book out there. I started with about 50 readers and up to a constant about 10,000 now, which is pretty good. So I launch a new book. I'm going to make good money that month and hopefully get some good support and good feedback to make the next book better. But really, I'd I'd like to see 100,000. It would be nice to launch a book and see a million dollar month, which is, I mean, and that's not ego talking. That's just from a business perspective. Every business wants to see their business grow. And finding those readers, that's our constant challenge. As I say, writing the book is the hardest thing you'll ever do just until you've written it and you find <laughs> out it's only half the battle. Right. So. I always quote that Japanese proverbs. Once you're halfway there, you're only nine, you know, once you're 90% done, you're only halfway there. And that's how writing really feels. So let's talk about your idea generation, because of course, there's a lot of, I think what you've come to write is science fiction, because I think when you were young, you had a love for science fiction. But where do the stories get generated? Obviously, the book about your Alaska connection makes sense. But where do you get your ideas? How do you generate them? As an avid reader growing up and all through my military career and all through even my business consulting career, I was gone. I was on the road a lot. And I didn't always get access to quality TV. So I read. I was reading about a book a week because I still had my primary duties working 12 hours a day. And I read sci-fi and I saw the plots. I saw the things I liked. And I'm like, oh man, if, if only this would have happened or if this, what about this aspect of that? And, and that's where I get my ideas. It's, uh, some are unique because of the beauty of sci-fi is being able to take a current situation and painting it on that extraterrestrial landscape. So that's a lot of the things I see. I just see something today and say, Hey, Let's put that into this situation and we'll add werewolves and then it'll be uh, it'll be different and people won't recognize that. Hey, I'm talking about this issue, but it's going to resonate somewhere deep inside. Uh, Gene Roddenberry was the master at that. Right. And I think, you know, and I, I find like I'm currently reading the Cygnus space opera and I'm looking through the characters and going, OK, I'm following the story. But I'm like, what is he sharing with me that I'm not that I'm supposed to get, but there's all these undertones of conversations <laughs> happening. And I really enjoy that because honestly, I'm not a sci-fi reader. So reading your books is like walking into a new space. I tell this to David Simpson, the writer of the post-human series, when I had him on the show, I was like, I think I have such a deeper connection because I know the person. And so reading it makes me feel like I get that they're sharing deeper things. And even though I'm enjoying the story, there seems to be an undercurrent of like a message. Is that conscious for you? Uh, yes. A lot of it is. Some of it just comes through because uh, I spent 21 years in the Marine Corps 
And so a lot of the stuff that was beaten into me, honor, courage, and commitment, those kinds of tenets, I think, come through in my writing. Because I always have military characters of one sort or another. I looked at my all my stories. I'm like, every single one of my stories. Oh, my God, I, I need to get away from that. But uh, do I really? Right. Because uh, I always encourage people, write what you know. A lot of people look at right to market. Oh, God, I don't do romance, but it's 60% of the market or whatever that number is. I can find traction better there. Oh, my God. Don't do what you're going to have to because then it becomes work. Right. Write what you like to read first off because you understand the, the tropes, the, the things people expect. And work in your own angles. Make it unique to you. And after you've written a little bit, my editor says, if I read one paragraph of a blank work and it was yours, I could recognize it. I'm like, okay, okay, that's the writer's voice. So you'll develop that. And that's, uh, that becomes part of you and you expand on that and become even a better version of you. It's like you get to find yourself through your writing because there's things that probably come up for you as you write that you have to just make a decision. A character maybe is making it, a plot choice is making it, but it's really you having to decide, well, where am I going with this? Yep. That's well stated as well. Thank you. So let's talk about your process. If you're producing maybe a book a month, which it seems like you're able to do, how do you plan and organize your writing? Like, So you get an idea, something strikes you from your military background or just like what's in your mind, then what do you do? Like, okay, I have a genesis of an idea. What does your process look like? I generally have a complete story arc, like the current uh, Bad Company series that I'm working on. I'm on book three about halfway through, but I've got the uh, story arc for probably six or eight books. So I just fill in the Lego pieces of that arc. I've got things that I want to hit, whether it's a social issue of today that pops up. Oh, hey, let me, let, me, let me address that in one way or another. And then I go forth. The way I write my books is I write the first chapter and I write the last chapter. And then I fill in everything in between. And then I'll edit the last chapter, of course, so I don't, because I'll have changed some things during the plot, during the writing process. And then uh, I go on to the next book. I know which series I need also from a business perspective. I need to do like the bad company. That's that's the big money series. So I'll do one of those books. And then next I'll do free trader seven because I promised my readers. So I have a bucket of stuff I want to write this year. And then I prioritize it as I get closer. Last year, I, I did the, here's the books I'm going to do this year. That put a lot of extra pressure on me that I don't want this year. So right. I'm just doing, here's the one I'm working on. Here's the next one. And I have the overall arcs in my mind. So that's a good question. I I recycle, refresh and get to work. So you say you have your story arc in your mind and you talked about the story arc. What does that look like? Because I'm sure a lot of listeners like, I'd love to write a book. I just don't know where to start. When you say story arc, what do you mean? (laughs) Let me take the the current bad company, for example. I took my characters from an 11 book series, which was post-apocalyptic mainly in the Cartharian Gambit universe. And I took them to space because I love writing space opera and space opera is my favorite. And thank you for reading Cygnus, uh, yeah. uh, Cygnus space opera, ubiquitously named, just in case you were wondering what uh, genre it was. The Cygnus space opera is that. And I wanted to write more of that, but with my successful characters from the Terry Henry Walton Chronicles. So I take them to space. What does that look like? So in my mind, I have to put myself into their position. These are people who were successful in a post-apocalyptic Earth, they lost all their technology and then spent 150 years helping to rebuild Earth, but it was nowhere near what it was before when they when they finally left. 
and they left Earth because of alien intervention. Okay, and that's all straightforward. It's not any hand wavium too much anyway. So what kind of things would they encounter? Well, humanity exporting justice is our tagline. It's a humanity's greatest export is justice. So we have to have that justice angle in each book. And then also we've got the characters who are now interacting with aliens first time ever. How do they work those issues, which is a a current social issue as well? How do you deal with somebody who's not like you? Right. And then we have some good military action because I love good military action in my uh, mill sci-fi. So it's mill sci-fi space opera. And so how do we work all these things together? So just think through those points, jumble it together, shake the cards, throw them out on the table, and there we are. And yes, I do it all in my mind, but that's, uh, I guess I've been blessed with a mind that can handle that. I know there's a lot of people who use like multicolored stickies and will put them on a board and it's exactly the same. It's, hey, here's something I want to hit. Here's the, here's the start. Or what kinds of dilemma do we have? What kind of interaction? What's our team that we're taking to the game? And then the game. You're playing the game. You're doing all these things. What's the wrap-up? Why would anybody play this game? Why is winning worth it? And that's what we work toward. And what is the cost to win? And the current book is called Price of Freedom, which is a good title. I love it because it's what are you willing to pay for somebody else's freedom? That's what I mean. That's what I get when I'm reading your books. I'm like, there's always an undercurrent of, I would say, truth, virtuous notions that lay underneath the characters. If I'm reading about an intergalactic rabbit or if I'm reading about a relationship, I hear and feel that right below the surface, which I think is really great. So when you go to sit down to write and you have your word count, do you go, I'm going to write that word count and then press stop? Or do you go until your flow is over? How does that look for you? I used to write, I had to hit a minimum. And when I started, my word count was I shot for a thousand words a day. And it's not just a thousand words, it's good words. So I'm very flexible on holding myself accountable for the word count. So I I was shooting for a thousand words a day and I didn't always hit it because some days it just, it was harder to write than others. I am a huge proponent of you must write every day, even if it's only a hundred words. And you'll find that that becomes your safe place and you go and you tell the story. If you don't write every day, then it's easier to get away from that. So you make that commitment, you write every day, and then you'll find that, hey, 3,000 words isn't that bad. I can do 3,000 words in, in about two and a half hours of focused time. Well, I never get two and a half hours of focused time because I run conferences and, and author conferences are hugely time consuming. So we get our words in when we can and just I start with the story. I edit as I go. So I'll go back and read the previous page or two. And what I was working on this morning is Bad Company 3. I left out one major character completely. I'm like, where in the hell is Christina? Oh, my God. <laughs> I, left, I left out a major character. So I'm going back through, inserting her, my cop out. And I think we call this the, the lantern is because the readers will be like, where's Christina? And so I'm going to say, hey. Sorry, I've been absent, but, and make up some excuse and why she hasn't been in all of these scenes in the first half of the book. (laughs) So I'll hit that and then make sure that she is a presence within the rest of the book. I don't know what the hell I was thinking, but working on that. And I've got these different scenes and reading the past page or two, I clean up the text, improve the flow and just keep moving right along. So you do that before you start the next, like you sit down and you read the, the next day's. Yesterday's work and okay. 
and that's because my natural stopping point could be when my wife gets home from uh, from the university. So if she's home, oh, hey, and I'll mid, I'll stop mid sentence. <laughs> and sometimes right. I'm like, what was I thinking there? The worst is stopping a mid dialogue sentence. What right. what was he saying and why? So so you talked about characters and you know including them. Do you? Because it can get confusing as a writer to remember all your characters. And it doesn't sound like you plan out some sort of chart to remember them all, unless I'm misunderstanding. So do you have a set of, like, in your mind, like, there's only so many characters I'm going to try to move through a story before I get lost, or maybe even the reader gets lost? Keep in mind, I was a business consultant, and one of our huge claims to fame was the ability to take clients' numbers and conduct a very thorough business diagnostics. So even though I was a lawyer, I was a business diagnostics specialist. So I freaking love spreadsheets, man. I, uh, so I have all of my characters in spreadsheets. I have numerous spreadsheets open while writing a book. So I have spreadsheets with tabs regarding geography, regarding characters, regarding uh, certain plot points. And, and so I just I put those in there and then I'll X through them if it's a plot point, if it's a character. I might add stuff to them. Ah, this character married this character to put that in. Oh, they have these kids. So I can create a uh, organizational chart. And that's one of the things I've been doing in all my books lately is, is adding that org chart because I have so many characters after 15 books in one series. Of course you do. Right. So, so I have a laundry list of characters and who they are at the beginning just to remind people. Right. And how well do you know your characters before you start to write them? Or do they evolve as you create them? I have a good idea who they are, but they do evolve. Because sometimes you just have to do it, whether it's, a, it's for a plot as part of a plot device. And you always want to keep your characters consistent. They can grow over time, but you can't have monumental jerks in their behavior without a catalyst type event. Because generally, we don't change who we are unless we've had a, a significant emotional event. Like if somebody has a near-death experience, it changes who they are. It changes them and their perspective and interaction with the world. So that's, those are the kinds of things that you've got to work in. So if somebody has that, they're a happy-go-lucky person, and now they have the significant emotional event, they generally don't go back to being that happy-go-lucky person. And this is the relatability of the characters that helps cement your readership because they can relate. Hey, this person's just always happy-go-lucky no matter how horrible things the things are that happen around him. So try, try to avoid that. Right. And I think that's the thing that's important, I think, sometimes is if you make the writers consistent, I mean, the, the characters consistent so that they act the way a reasonable human being would if they were that person, rather than try to complicate their behaviors, then the plot can be the thing that happens to them. And as that, it unfolds. Yeah, it's just relatability. They have to be a believable character. And that's, uh, I think that's one thing that I've been lucky with all my books is that I write characters that people can relate to and believe that, yes, this character does that. They don't do things that are so out in left field that it's like, no, nobody in their right mind would do that. Right. You talked about spending a lot of time not only writing, but planning conferences. And your 20 to 50K really brand is really the title of your conferences. Well, how did that start? And what is the purpose of that, that group, that focus? The, uh, when I published my first book, I, I had nowhere to go and no sales. And I'm like, okay, hey, uh, I found K-boards and not bashing anything, but uh, I didn't get the help I needed on Kboards to for me to improve. I couldn't find an editor and, and my covers were bad. It just wasn't a good situation. It just I couldn't find the help I needed and I knew I needed help. Well, Michael Anderley, that's this was March of twenty sixteen. 
He's like, uh, hey, I'm going to start this group over here, Facebook group, 20 books to 50K. Here's my uh, – all you need to do is make $7.50 a day per book for 20 books, and you're going to be making 50K. And Cabo is 35K. You can live well. I'm like, okay, hey, I, I can buy that because I had been around enough. I knew that you don't write one book and it's going to sell a million copies. That doesn't happen. If you assume that doesn't happen, you're going to be better off. And if it does happen, hey, good on you. Keep pressing. Don't take your foot off the gas. Don't start partying and forget about the readers. So I came over to 20 Books 50K, and Michael helped me immensely to understand a little bit more of the business, even though he was still fairly new himself. But he was willing to share what he was trying, what was working, what wasn't working. And so we kind of went on this mutual journey. And then in the fall of 2016, he's like, hey, I, I wrote myself into a corner. I've got a character that the readers want to know more about, but I don't have the bandwidth to write him. A Marine, and it's in a post-apocalyptic world. You've already written post-apocalyptic books, and you're a Marine. Would you write this series for me? We're looking at four books. So uh, 15 books and 1.1 million words later, we have that character. That's really great. And where are the conferences held, and how often? Oh, geez, we were talking about conferences, weren't we? <laughs> this is, no, it so, starts with the group, right? That's really where it born, and then they, they grew into something more. The 20 books of 50K, so Yes. The giving back, because like I, like I said at the beginning, I, didn't need, I don't need to work for the money. I can sit at home and, and be fine. I don't need to work. But this is very, very rewarding work, and I, I love the, the storytelling and writing books. So there's a lot of other people out there who are trying to escape a really bad job or who are just dabbling and are excellent and master wordsmiths and deserve an opportunity. And, and everybody deserves a chance to help themselves. I'm a big fan of that. I'm willing to help anybody who's willing to help themselves. So I saw that in the group that, hey, there's people churning, trying, hey, I'm trying this. It's not working. I'm doing this. It's not working. I'm writing these words. I've got these books. I'm trying to get a great cover. And uh, we're looking and say, hey, we, we can do this. We can help these people by bringing people together. So we hatched the concept of a conference in November of 2016. And this is before I published the first book with Michael. And at that point, even though I had a, a very successful traditionally published series, I hadn't been paid for it yet. So I'm still in the red. I'm like, hey, Eric, I think I'm doing pretty well, but I actually have not made any money self-publishing. And then December was a breakthrough month, and every month's been great after that. So we uh, started asking people, and we got some incredible people who said, yes, I would love to come speak at this conference because I believe in what you're doing and I, what you as Michael Anderley are doing in trying to help people remove the fear, those things that make people afraid to publish. And so the conference, the first one in Vegas, I really wanted that one to go well. And I think it did. I, I mean, overwhelmingly positive response. We had a great group and actually some books, authors that met at 20 Books to 50K, 20 Books to 50K Vegas and are collaborating. And some of the first books coming out of those collaborations because they met in Vegas are already out there, and that is really great to see, the success stories from Vegas. When was that uh, conference, the Vegas conference? That was the beginning of November. So that's pretty so recent. Already, just two months later, yeah. And uh, 20 Books London is next week, London, February 3rd and 4th. And uh, 20 Books Vegas 2018 is November 6th to 8th. We moved it to midweek to take advantage of better pricing. Right. So. Yeah, and of course, Greg, I'm, I'm interested when I saw – that you were doing uh, 2019 Bali, I'm like, I'm in. I'll see you there. I'll buy my <laughs> ticket. <laughs> That's really great. 
we'll link all that up to the show notes too, so that people know how to find you and how to get connected, especially if they're looking for a conference that's maybe either in their area or okay. even out. So that'll be great. So I want to also talk to you about when you're developing these characters and you're working on your plots, is there ever a time you go like this just, it isn't working. It's not what I expected or what I had in my mind. And if so, what do you do? I've had to rewrite one book in entirety because it didn't work. I used a flashback technique and I had some other plot points that I did have to rewrite, but I try not to go so far down the rabbit hole that I get lost. So I haven't had one where I've had to scrap an entire book because even the book I rewrote, I took those flashbacks, I cut them out, I consolidated them, I published them as individual shorts, flash fiction short stories, and then use those as fillers in between when the books were publishing. And then I published that as a separate bundle of short stories. So even words that didn't fit in the current text were still marketable and sellable. Right. So I try not to, to go too far where the plot just where the character is so out of uh, character and the plot is just bad, not working. So right. I, I think I've been very lucky in, in having a sound plot to begin with that I can work with. So you were an avid reader growing up and obviously into your adulthood. Do, do you still find the time to do that kind of reading now? I actually do not. I have uh, very few books that I read for fun. The last one I read was M.R. Forbes' Forgotten because I'm a big colony ship fan. I do read a lot of books that I edit from a developmental edit editing standpoint within the Cretharian Gambit universe. So I do get to read a lot of books and they are fun to read, but it's not just going to Amazon saying, hey, I, let me read that book right. or the latest Raymond Well release or something like that. Yeah. It is, it's sort of a, a way to, I know I read a lot of books as well. A lot of them are either guests that are coming on the show or clients or, or people that I'd like to be clients that I'd like to reach out to. So I do a lot of reading, but like you, like you, it's not as easy to find the time to do that and just pick a book randomly and say, cause I used to do it to escape and just like turn everything off. And it's a wonderful way to, to kind of get lost. And uh, yeah, so that's something to consider. So when you're writing a book, do you know exactly like you're going, I'm going to sit down and write this. I know the title, or do you think of that later? You have a series, so maybe you know ahead of time. And then do you know, like, oh, I'll finish. I start now. I'm, I'm going to be done February 28th, for example. Yes. And do you have editors you work with that is like your favorite, or do you just always constantly try different editors? Because I know people who are looking for editors always feel like, how do you find them? How do you know if they're good? How do I, how do I work with them? What is your relationship to editors? Many editors will do a thousand word sample for you. And that is a great testament to see first how your writing is going and whether the person is trying to change your voice or just trying to make a better you. I have uh, been blessed with an editor from way back because somebody posted, uh, hey, my editor, uh, somebody fell out and she has some bandwidth. So I said, hey, I've got three books, a quarter of a million words. Would you be interested? Oh, yes, it'll take four months or something like that. So I booked her and since then, she has edited uh, 1.8 million words for me. I actually have her on salary now. So because that relationship, she does well by me. I've also used a couple other editors. Even after I've had it edited one place, I'll take it to another editor and, and have them take a look because I'm trying to get better. Even after the words, even after the uh, a review that says well-written, I don't believe it. I think I can write better. I think I can uh, smooth the flow more and and uh, it takes extra eyes to see that. I have a couple developmental editors who are ready to read anything that I put out within a day or two. 
I have uh, beta readers who also will do that for me. And, uh, and what a testament to, to them that they like my reading that much. I, I think they're warped, but uh, hey, I, it's, I'm good with it. And they'll read my story. So I get feedback very, very quickly nowadays. So that's why it also makes it easier to publish a book a month. Because last year it was, uh, it was get it in the pipeline early and then wait. Because one book took, geez, two and a half months to get edited. And then uh, working with a traditional publisher, their timelines aren't anywhere near the flexibility that indies have. Right. Let's talk about that relationship and why you chose to go traditional, what benefits it had, and what were the drawbacks. Because I would think people have this idea, if I just get published, that means it's the best case scenario. But what was your experience? Mine was I had, it was my first book. I knew it was okay. I knew it needed help. And I couldn't get it where it needed to go. A publisher permuted press was looking at expanding. They're huge in the zombie, post-apocalyptic zombie market. And they wanted to expand and get out of zombies as the reader trend and get more into like survivalist fiction. And they were looking for authors. And I was the very first person who found out about that. And I said, oh, as a matter of fact, I, I have a book. The title is wrong. The cover is bad. It's unedited in a relative sense. But the story was sound. So I sent it to them and they got back to me very quickly and said, yes, we'll do this. Here's the deal. But you have one post-apoc book that's 100,000 words. This genre, we need about 50,000 words. So we'll split this in half. We need a third one because you got to have a trilogy. And then I, I signed a contract for a fourth one because the third one didn't end the story. So, right. Uh, but they contacted me. It wasn't a vanity press. I didn't pay them anything. They paid for the cover. They paid for the editing. They paid for the production. It's in Barnes & Noble now as well. I mean, they did great by me. So I can go down to Barnes & Noble and there's my books because Permuted Press got me there. Right. And actually, I'm running a big promo on the Terry Henry Walton Chronicles. We're putting new covers on it. There's 11 books in that series. So February 26th to March 2nd, book one is free. Book two is 99 cents. And I asked permuted. I'm like, oh, by the way, this is my personal series. Would you guys be willing to promote this? And they jumped right on board. They said, yes, we'll shoot it to our social media. We'll include it in our, in our newsletter. And thank you. And uh, I promote uh, End Times Alaska, the series I have with them as well. And I think we have a very good relationship, especially when a traditional publisher is willing to help out an indie on his books in relation to the books I publish with them. So I I appreciate that. If you look in my uh, in End Times Alaska, book four actually just came out in paperback. In the front, it has my full list of books. All of my indie publications are there. That's pretty incredible. What a partnership that you have in that publisher. Because I've had experiences with people. Because all these, you mentioned vanity, vanity presses, and I think that people need to know what that is. Uh, maybe you could explain it to us. But a lot of people don't have a great relationship with these small houses or vanity presses because it left them in a poor relationship with their publisher. Yeah. Let's talk about vanity press. Tell us a little bit. It just maybe gives a little definition so people understand what that means. My idea of a vanity press is if you have to pay somebody to publish your book, it's a vanity press and it's not good because you have removed their incentive to sell your book. Some of them do okay, but I haven't heard a single story where, boy, this they took me to a whole new level. No, I, people sometimes maybe get their money back, but usually no. And some people are paying like five grand to a company to get their book published. There is zero incentive for that company to market your book, spend any money because they got your money. Formatting, uh, you can see with Vellum, you can format a book in five minutes. 
you can edit a book for half a cent a word. So your hundred thousand book, hundred thousand word book is five hundred dollars. There they go. They can edit it, throw a cover on it for two hundred bucks. You just paid them five grand for something you could have done for seven hundred. And uh, that's my idea of a vanity press, a small press. Now they are incentivized to have quantity. They need a lot of authors because their sales are usually a little bit lower and they take that and they want to build on that. So my four book series has done very well for, for permuted, but it's not paying any of their salaries. It, it's paying a chunk, but not, it's not, Hey, I, we need to coddle this guy. No, no, I, I'm not that, uh, my ego isn't that big. And also I get to see the numbers and no, I'm not that guy. I'm not uh, uh, JD Rob. So so would you return the, to traditional publishing if it had a good re- relationship or situation, or are you really happy with your, your indie track? Oh, I, I'm happy with my indie track, but as a business mind, I see the limitations that I personally have, and I am willing to share some of the revenue for the right agreement. Because like maintaining artistic license and maintaining a publishing schedule that would be about half of what I maintain as an indie and things like that. I don't want where you will have a book a month. It will be a hundred thousand words each. It will, it will, will. No, I'm not doing that because then it becomes work and not, Hey, I write because I enjoy telling stories. So, and the money, I know what I can make. I know what my potential earnings are for this year. So it would take a pretty, pretty big chunk of change and very loose controls for me to jump to. But I know that now and I can negotiate from that position. So. Right. So let's let's talk about another area. So like your audiobooks that are created as an indie publisher, what's your process like for that? And when did you start to make your books into audiobooks? I met a fellow Alaskan who did audiobooks. So I had my uh, my thriller, my one thriller, which is a pseudo autobiography made into an audiobook. I loved it. And all of the ones with Michael Anderley are made into audiobooks. And I also just recently had my Cygnus Space Opera books one to three made as a single audio. So that's 30 hours of audio for a single credit. So that one has been selling gangbusters and with no marketing besides a Facebook post and not even a boosted post. So those are, uh, you offer some, some value and people will come. So that the audiobooks and I pay it, I pay for the audiobooks. I'm not going to do royalty share because as a lawyer, a seven year commitment on a royalty share is just uh, way, way too much. That gives me the willies. So I'm, I'm good. If I can't pay up front for it, then I won't have it done. Because the free trader, I didn't get made into audiobooks. And so I, I don't think I ever will. They don't have the sales to support that. But a Cygnus, the space opera, that opportunity came. And I'm like, yes, let's do this as a, as a single 30-hour audiobook and rock and roll. I'll get my money back. That'll pay for itself within about four months. And then uh, it's all gravy after that. So six years and eight months of gravy. Yeah. That's a... Uh- Great to, to see that you have that. And have any of your books been translated into other languages? No, they have not. Because I, I always wonder for fiction. I know it's easy for nonfiction because usually it's a pretty casual conversation. There's not a lot of jargon, you know, idioms, which I think could be a little bit challenging when translating a book into other languages. Do you know of any fiction writers who have had success doing that? Because I know really the lack of writers is, is a bigger problem than most people think. I think they think, oh, it's so saturated. The truth is, we need good writers and good storytellers. It's not like we're, we have too many. I think people are willing to read a good story. 
So if they have to fight their way through, and I'm fanatical about the first page and the first chapter, make sure that is the the very best example of your writing. Because if you give them that sample up front, that, hey, this look at this flow, oh, look at these dilemmas, look at these interactions, then they'll keep reading. People won't keep reading if it's painful to get through like an info dump. I, uh, I provided some feedback to an individual a couple of weeks ago, and I'm like, hey, the whole first chapter is an info dump. I won't read any further. So if you want people to buy this book, take that info and put it into dialogue, put it into interactions, put it into self-reflection. My God, don't just do an info dump because you're, you're losing readers at that point. So if you're in Kindle Unlimited, your page count is going to be four and that's it. And it's going to stop. Yeah. So when you when you say info dump, tell, tell us what you mean, because I think this is a really good example of where people get lost when they start writing their books. This is laying that background where you want to craft your story, but you think the readers need background. Ah, this is what happened to the world. Here's this conglomerate working with these people, and then this company is bad, and, and here's this intergalactic sphere. And if you throw three names at them in one paragraph and it's on the first page, you're wrong because now people have to start building a list of names and places. Be careful with, with how many new things you throw at a reader in that first page. My first book I wrote, which it's a kind of a stupid challenge, I wrote it in first person. And I wanted to go through the whole book where, where we never know what that character's name is. And I, I, I couldn't do that because a couple of interactions with strangers. Hey, what's your name? Okay, of course, that's going to be natural. So four instances where I did use his name in the book, but generally I wanted to go through where you didn't know the name. And it made the flow better because you weren't overwhelmed with these names. I use generally just a single name. So a first name, Bryce. That's it. No last name. And it's easier to track for the readers because I, I'm not overwhelming them with first names, last names, titles, and, and stuff like that. I have some titles, but generally, we try to keep it easy so they can follow. Right. Because I think people forget that even if they've been reading for 40 pages, they actually might forget your characters' names. It's okay yep. for them to be gentle, simple names that they don't have to struggle to remember or pronounce. Or like being clever is not as helpful as just being <clears throat> a good storyteller. And from a physical production standpoint, if your character's name is Euripides, how many times do you really want to write that? So <laughs> I want <laughs> right. easy names that I can type quickly. So I try to keep them to like four or five letters, especially as a shortened version. We have Terry Henry Walton. Well, that character was, was Michael's character that I wrote on his behalf, but he goes by Terry or TH. So that's what you see in the text, Terry or TH. Right. And that's easy to type. It's easy to use. And most other people are first names only. Yeah. So tell us about how you write. Do you write in, in Word? Do you write in Scrivener? Do you write in, like, where's your, where's your writing happen? Being in the military, we went to Microsoft Office. So a million years ago, before I retired, Microsoft Office is what we use. Into business consulting, well, guess what? We're still using Microsoft Office because Excel, right? And uh, so Word, I am so comfortable with Word. That's what I use. I have Scrivener. I've looked at it and I'm like, I don't want to take the time to learn this. I, I know it may be better in the end, but still, Word is a good cross-platform tool. I've got the Word app for my phone. I've got Word on my uh, Microsoft per Surface Pro 4. I'm not an Apple guy, so I don't have Vellum, but uh, I know people who do, and they are very, very helpful for me in formatting my books. So I have all my books formatted professionally now, as opposed to me just crunching them, taking them from Word and uploading directly to a uh, 
to Amazon. So I write in Word. I do everything in Word. I track my characters in Excel and I make my cover wall in PowerPoint. And my first three covers I made using PowerPoint. Yeah. Yeah. Cutting edge, man. Cutting edge. I think people think that they have to be perfect. They have to look good. Don't get me wrong. There's too much information for your covers not to look good. My first book, I'm still embarrassed how awful it is. And I still haven't worked on it because once you get into the business of helping other writers, it's easy to neglect your own writing, which I don't want to do anymore. That's my goal this year, not to worry so much about everyone else's books. But, but I think there's a misunderstanding that you have to have it so perfect and spend all this money, which you really don't. Get out there, get your work known. You can always have data cover. You have to have the best cover you can get. And that may mean you make it yourself or that may mean you pay a lot. It may mean you pay not a whole lot. You just have to have the best cover for that book. There are some people who get Larry Elmore artwork for their covers. And uh, he was at uh, Gary Con last year. And to do a cover art for him, it's five grand. Okay, that's nice. I don't do fantasy, but a Larry Elmore cover helps draw people to your book. But it's not an end all. That isn't going to get your $5,000 back unless you're with a uh, traditional publishing house just because you have a Larry Elmore cover. So you get the best cover you can for your book, but it's got to be genre specific. It's got to look great at thumbnail size. It's got to, the title has to be visible because people need to know what they're buying. And you have to have a catchy title, even if it's one word, Destroyer. What a great title. A lot of books have that title, but it also makes you want to look further if you can see a character or a ship or something like that. And then the blurb has to be sales copy. Don't make it a synopsis for all, by all that's holy. Don't do that. Hey, these guys went and they went on a great journey. Can you imagine if you did a, a synopsis for Lord of the Rings instead of, <laughs> instead of sales copy? Oh, these guys went on a great journey. They were really short with big hairy feet and they beat the bad guy. Read my book. Right. No. <laughs> don't do that. And you know what? It's, it's an experimentation. But like you said, there's enough examples out there. You can try and try and try again. Get feedback. Join your group, 20 to 50K brand. It's totally open to people who are willing to put the work in. Don't just go there and ask them questions. Go there and learn. Go there and listen. Listening's good. I think more authors should go and listen and just observe, and then they'll know what intelligent questions to ask. Where else could they find you uh, if they want to know more about you? CraigMartell.com, C-R-A-I-G-M-A-R-T-E-L-L-E.com. No pen, no slashes, anything like that. Or just look up uh, Craig Martell on Amazon. I've got a pretty healthy list of books on there, my uh, Amazon page. And that's uh, that's it. That's me. Great. Straightforward. Read my books. I really appreciate it, Azul. Uh, you're reading you're reading mine and my books, man. That's awesome. Yeah, it's been it. great. You're creating converts uh, to science fiction for those of us who haven't been growing up. So thank you so much for being here today. All right. Thank you, man. Join me again for another interview for great authors who talk about their story how they got there, and why they feel like they're born to write. Please subscribe to this podcast, leave an honest review, and you can always find me at CoachAzul.com.